This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss efforts to improve primary care delivery. With me to discuss the topic is a senior fellow at Mathematica, Dr. Ann O'Malley. Ann, welcome to the program and thank you for your time. Thank you. On background, let me note the importance of primary care should be obvious. Primary care services are designed to promote wellness, prevent disease onset, progression, exacerbation, and premature death. Adequate primary care is today more relevant than ever since as a population the U.S. comparatively experiences high rates of disease, particularly disabling disease with no discernible compression of morbidity or disease with fewer consequences. We also suffer more disease throughout our lives, die earlier than our counterparts in comparable countries, and our health disadvantage is worsening. With me again then to discuss a select few primary care reforms is Mathematica's Dr. Ann O'Malley. So with that, Ann, let me begin by asking, because of the likely worsening shortage of primary care physicians and the ACA's rapid addition of millions more to the health insurance rolls, and as I just noted, uh, our poor population health status, primary care delivery is becoming more team-based. This is a large movement in um, healthcare uh, more broadly even. But what is team-based primary care? Um, so team-based primary care refers to two or more health professionals working collaboratively with patients and, if appropriate, with their family or caregivers to maximize that patient's health and to meet their health care needs to the best of their abilities. Um, typically, a primary care team includes a lead clinician, such as a physician, and a, other key personnel, such as nurses, medical assistants, sometimes care managers, uh, cleric, even clerical staff, and um, others when available, such as behavioral health specialists and pharmacists. And this is all by way of improving care quality, correct? Correct. I mean, there's an emerging consensus that teamwork really is necessary for effective and efficient primary care. I think, the, as you pointed out, the imbalance between primary care, um, increasing demands on providers, and the capacity in, in the U.S. Um, creates a real need for improved patient access. Um, and physicians are realizing that they can't just keep working harder, they have to work smarter. So that's some of the origin of the concept of primary care teamwork in, in, in primary care specifically. And what do we know about the, the quality or the outcomes uh, resulting from team-based care? That, that's a great question. There's, there's not as much evidence on uh, the effect of primary care-based teams. Um, most of the literature on teamwork comes from industry, from the military, um, where teams have been highly effective and pretty heavily studied. Within the healthcare setting, most of the work on teams has come from the hospital setting, and, and you know, physicians who work in operating rooms and trauma centers are very used to doing team-based care. But team-based care in the primary care setting is really um, in its infancy, so there's not as much evidence on um, what are the you know, hard outcomes. I think there's general consensus, though, that there's a real need for improved efficiency. And given the provider shortage um, and the length of time it takes to grow new physicians and as well as nurse practitioners, there's a real need for teamwork. 
And the, as I suggested, the driving force also, too, is just the shortage of primary care physicians. Yeah. I mean, in addition to the shortage with, you know, growing insurance coverage among patients, as you said, patients are living longer with more comorbid conditions. There's a lot more demand for highly trained primary care generalists to manage those patients. And so they're realizing that they can't do everything themselves. They've got to divvy up the clinical care um, and some of the other work in taking care of patients among the entire team. And so it's, again, about working more efficiently, working smarter instead of just working harder all the time. So let me ask this. You're a physician yourself, and the, um, the challenge you read in the literature, at least, is that uh, physicians, not just primary care, specialists across the board, may not be all that predisposed to giving up their so-called clinical independence. Right. So to what extent is this a problem or issue? Right. A lot of people say it's really just a generational that since medical school students are trained more in a team-based environment, maybe that's ultimately the only solution. Well, I, mean, I think there's certainly the hope that, it, that medical students will start to be trained more in a team-based setting. I don't know how, to what extent that's actually happening in medical schools now. I think some are more ahead of the curve than others. But yeah, historically, we are trained to not rely on other people. We're trained to not be slackers, you know, to verify everything ourselves. You know, as a resident, you're trained, don't just take the radiologist reading or x-ray, go down to the radiology suite and read it yourself and talk to the radiologist. So that's really counterintuitive um, to teamwork. So to be part of a team, you have to be willing to rely on others. And physicians, because of patient safety concerns, um, as well as, you know, obviously concerns about control have, have historically not been as willing to be parts of teams as might be ideal for the efficient delivery of care. Let's take this then from the patient's perspective. Are there any concerns patients have? I mean, some of the literature suggests that this is actually confusing mm -hmm. uh, to patients. They don't know with whom they should speak. They don't know uh, whose orders they should uh, follow, etc. Right. I think, you know, the real risk is if teams get so large and that there's not a cohesive core set of individuals who are the ones interacting consistently with the patient, then that's a risk at risk. But patients, by and large, at least um, from the literature I've read and some of the work we've done, as long as they have a defined element, you know, core team, of, usually it's the physician and the medical assistant or physician and nurse care manager with whom they stay in, in consistent contact, then teams can happen in a way that is not confusing to the patient. Okay. One uh, variation on this is this idea of a shared medical appointment. Mm -hmm. What's a shared medical appointment? Um, so shared medical appointments are basically group visits, um, usually of eight or more patients seen by a multidisciplinary team of healthcare providers. And typically they meet with either a nurse practitioner or a physician, sometimes um, that both or other um, members of the staff for about a one to two hour long group visit. And um, typically they're used for patients with chronic conditions such as diabetes who may be at particularly high risk of heart uh, failure, for example. Um, patient participation in these kinds of uh, shared medical appointments or group visits is purely voluntary. Um, and their goal is to help patients improve the management of their condition, uh, increase the efficiency of care, and improve patient access. Um, there's been a couple of really nice studies, one by Dr. Karen Yelly, who, and, um, who looked at group visits for heart failure and found that they were quite effective at improving patient knowledge. 
And then another study by Dr. Susan Kirsch at the VA found that group visits reduce cardiovascular risk in diabetes patients. So I think um, it's, it's a very nice venue for patients to learn from one another and from the providers and to do so in a way that's efficient. And you make the point, point there that patients can learn from one another, not just from the clinician. Exactly. And the upside for the clinician is they can bill for each individual. So if they have five patients for an hour, they can bill for five separate visits. Yeah, I'd, I'm not familiar with the billing regulations on this, so I don't know what, Why, what that, the rates That is are. the case for Medicare. Okay, so, um, yeah. But, um, but in terms of teamwork, I mean, I think shared medical appointments might be one example of teamwork, but there are a lot of other aspects to primary care teamwork outside of group visits, too. Okay, okay. Let's go to the uh, issue that um, undermines or enables all this, rather, and that's electronic medical records. Mm -hmm. So the healthcare industry has been notoriously slow in adopting IT. However, since the passage of federal legislation in 2009 to incent providers to adopt information technology, its use has rapidly become more widespread. Mm -hmm. How successful have primary care physicians been in the recent years in adopting and using IT to improve care, and specifically care coordination? Yeah, that's that's a really important question. Um, the latest work on this has been done by Dr. Kate DeRush, who also works here at Mathematica Policy Research. And, and she and her colleagues found that um, as of 2012, 45% of office-based primary care physicians had a basic electronic health record. And that's up significantly from um, 2008, um, when the rates were much lower. So the, the high-tech incentives are really having an effect in terms of primary care physician adoption of electronic health records, as well as adoption by other types of physicians. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of um, how helpful are they to care coordination, uh, we did a study, a qualitative study um, that I led back in 2008, where we talked to a range of, of practices from across the country on how helpful electronic health records were to coordinating care for their patients because that is one of the primary responsibilities of the primary care practice. Um, and the things we heard then are the things we heard again just this past year in, in 2013 when we did another study on a similar topic. Um, you know, in some respects, electronic health records are extremely helpful for care coordination. Um, for example, they prom provide immediate access to data for all members of the team within the practice. So if people are working together to try to meet a patient's needs, um, it, they can all access it in the record immediately. There's not a lot of hunting around for the data, obviously, on, in paper that's dispersed in different places. Secondly, there's a lot of use within a practice of some of the electronic messaging in ways that helps providers not have to interfere with a clinical encounter with a patient. So if you are sitting in an office with your physician, for example, the nurse doesn't necessarily have to knock on your door, and the doctor doesn't have to open the door and ask you for the lab results. It's all right there in the, in the electronic record, and it's been queued up before the visit in an efficient practice. So a lot of those things are really helping with within-office coordination. The problem arises when you talk about coordination between primary care offices and other specialists that the patient sees. That's where we're still having a lot of problems in the United States. Um, the vast majority of physicians in the United States in office-based settings who have an electronic health record do not have records that communicate with other providers' records. So this often can even include physicians who are in larger health systems. Um, sometimes the physicians in an office setting may use a different electronic health record than the hospital to which they admit. 
most of the time they use a different electronic health record than the other specialists that their patients may also see. So exchange of data between physicians when you refer a patient or get a consultation back from another practice is still done, believe it or not, by electronic faxing. Um, or phone calls. Phone calls are actually a very good thing (laughs) when the docs can talk in real time, but most of the time, you know, this doesn't happen electronically. It's just the the sharing of data and the common data exchange is not there yet. We have a long way to go in that arena. So limits to interoperability. Absolutely. So there's very poor interoperability between electronic health records across practices and across settings. Let me ask you specifically as it relates to the patient and using information technology to communicate with their physician or provider, mm-hmm. say, after hours. Right. The clinical community has been very, very slow to accept this. And appropriately, their argument or counter is, I never know when I'm not working. Right. I mean, I can do e- I mean, if you do emails or communicate with your patients via email, technically or theoretically, you can be working right. 24-7. Right. And, and, that's, and that's a legitimate concern. Um, there's also some concern about security of electronic um, in, in transmissions from patients, but that's where teamwork comes in. So um, in our study on primary care teams, where this is a separate study from the one I described earlier, we talked to practices from the, across the country who've been particularly effective at doing teamwork. They have delegated a lot of the patient um, outreach to providers to specific individuals on the primary care team so that the physician does not necessarily have to be the one sitting there 24-7 on their BlackBerry or their smartphone making sure that they're checking every email. So practices delegate somebody to handle emails that come in through the patient portal if they have one set up or through secure instant messaging or secure email. And then they have someone in the practice route those patient emails to the appropriate member of the team. So each team member has an inbox in their electronic health record. So if the patient's calling about a refill and it's a routine refill, it just goes to the nurse who handles refills. If it's about an appointment, it goes to the scheduling person. If it's about something that seems more urgent, um, hopefully the patient knows not to do that by email. But if if they do, they have somebody kind of monitoring this. So it doesn't all have to fall on the physician. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go to one of the major uh, developments in primary care delivery that we've witnessed over the last 15 years, and that's the emergence of these minute clinics or retail health clinics. Uh, Because of the shortage of primary care, access to primary care services, in 2000, a new model of primary care delivery emerged. At first, these were called minute clinics. Uh, Now they're more widely termed retail health clinics, or more generically termed retail health clinics. Uh, I looked, and they now are over 1,000 in number, they're in nearly every state, and they're providing care to over 5 million patients annually. What's your assessment of retail health clinics? Because, of course, this subject's been very much debated. Right. Yeah, so, so I mean, retail clinics are a heavily debated topic, as you've noted. Um, typically, they're staffed by a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Um, in they're, they're very heavily run by pharmacy chains. Um, and they tend to be located in high-traffic retail-type uh, settings. Their biggest role, honestly, in terms of the services they deliver uh, is in terms of delivering flu shots. Um, that's probably the, the most substantial piece of their business. And, and a study um, by Dr. Usher Pines in 2012 um, documented that, that they are one of the, um, that's one of the biggest pieces of business. 
Um, you know, there are pros and cons to retail clinics. I think on the pro side, uh, for otherwise healthy uh, young adults um, or healthy adults, they provide convenient access um, for very minor issues and for things like flu shots. Um, but on the flip side, um, there's a real risk that they can increase discontinuity or fragmentation of care. And this is particularly concerning for certain age groups. I think the pediatric population, um, you know, especially newborns, infants, young children who have a very demanding uh, well visit and immunization schedule, for that population, it's really critical that they have an ongoing continuous relationship with a pediatrician or a family medicine physician, someone who knows them well and can um, you know, walk them through um, the medical needs you have in that early stage of life. And so that if they do develop subtle signs and symptoms, they're seeing somebody who knows them over time. And you're not going to get that from a retail clinic. You, you need to do that with a primary care provider who knows you well so that subtle things don't get slipped through the cracks. Um, again, for the older population and for those with chronic conditions, it's also a real risk. You know, the continuity piece is critically important. And there have been several studies that show that you know, people with more health problems would much rather have continuity than quick access time for things that aren't, aren't true emergencies. Um, so, so you know, for those populations in particular, I think there's, you know, it's very risky if they try to get healthcare from retail clinics other than something as simple as a flu shot. And retail clinics are not set up to do ongoing chronic care management. They're not set up to manage comorbid conditions. So, so there, there really is that tension between the convenience and the access versus whole person-oriented care over time and continuity of a relationship with uh, a physician who knows you well. Um, so I think those are the biggest issues. The other thing to keep in mind is while retail clinics are growing relative to where they were at maybe 10 years ago, they still account for a tiny, tiny, just 1% of all visits made to, um, to office physician offices annually. So um, they are certainly growing. They are fulfilling a need for some, particularly in the area of flu shots, but it's important to keep in mind that they were account for a very small number of visits and a small percentage of visits nationally. So per your point, it's basically one-off care, and the advantage, again, is based on moreover access and price. And then there's the concern also, too, about to what extent, if at all, do they communicate with the patient's Absolutely. primary care physician after the visit. Right. In fact, there was a study... Um, whose author I can't remember at the moment, but that showed that very few of them actually do communicate back to the primary care physician. And uh, that same study also found that um, while patients say that they're going to tell their primary care physician or nurse that they saw a retail clinic, very rarely do they actually go through with that. So there's that information gap. That, and sometimes that can be important because you may think you have a sinus infection, but it might be something much more serious that you went to the retail clinic for. And a doctor who knows you well might be able to say, hey, wait, let's examine this a little more carefully. The other thing that gets raised when you talk about price and costs is some people argue that um, you know if a patient has a non-urgent care need, particularly one that arises after hours and they can't get through to their primary care practices, is a retail clinic a better alternative than going to the emergency department? And I think, you know, you can make a pretty good argument that maybe it is more cost effective if it's a non-urgent need, and patients are pretty good at knowing that, um, that you seek care for that non-urgent need 
you know, hopefully from your primary care provider, but a retail clinic is probably less costly to the system than is an emergency department. And that's why a lot of health plans are covering those types of visits. So while we talk about improving continuity of care, retail health clinics may actually be moving us somewhat in the other uh, Yeah, I mean, there have been several studies um, that have demonstrated that People who use retail clinics have much poorer continuity of care. One um, done by Dr. Rohr in 2013 and another by Dr. Reed in the same year. Um, and that showed that patients who saw uh, clinicians in retail clinics had um, more fragmented care and poor continuity of care. Well, we have time for one last question. So let me ask you, and this is sort of the forecast question. What, what does primary care have to do? I know this is a big question, but what does mm-hmm. primary care have to do to get better? You know, I think a lot of it is, in addition to primary care becoming more efficient um, and to, and to um, working more as primary care teams, what we really need is for the fee-for-service incentives to change. Um, primary care does not operate in a vacuum, and primary care providers, as all other providers in the healthcare system, are rational actors in response to the financial incentives that are sent their way. And so, you know, the fee-for-service system, as it's currently set up in the United States, disproportionately reimburses procedural um, and high-tech services over the more cognitive type of management that a well-trained primary care generalist does in, for example, managing a patient with multiple chronic conditions or a child with special health care needs. So our system really... Um, needs to start rewarding that type of care management and coordination of care that the primary care practice is particularly well trained to do, but at the moment doesn't have the support to do. So, so that's what we really need. More emphasis, less discrimination. Um, discri- I don't know. What Price you're discrimination. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm not an economist, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and with that, we're at our time. So let me say thank you so much. I'm very appreciative. Thank you, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.